0: Okay, this morning is March 5th. It's Sunday morning. It is a baby dedication morning. We're going to be- dedicate this baby, Christopher David Hall, and our message is raising up the next generation this morning. Now, I, I cheated a little bit today. <laughs> it's going to be hard for people that are listening online because they're not going to see the audiovisual. I don't do this very often, but I figure while I have all the grandparents here, I might as well take advantage there, there won't be a slide today that does not feature the little guy somewhere. It's kind of like, where's Waldo? You're going to have to find it in the middle of the Scripture. Okay? Isn't he cute? Yeah. We have a profound responsibility as the Church of the Living God not just to go through pomp and pageantry, not just to have a ceremony here this morning, but to make a profound statement for all of the heavenlies, for all of the people on the earth, for us as a church to join into because what happens with His life is important to Jesus. I was sharing with a mother this morning that most people that end up in fivefold ministry, if you talk to their parents, you find a, remo- a miraculous story surrounding their birth. Almost always. Strangers prophesying to them all. God plans this out a lot further than we did. No such thing as an accident as a baby. It's really not. Well, as we get into this this morning, I want to read a proverb to you. <laughs> How about that little smirk, huh? <laughs> Doing a Elvis impression. Yeah. Proverbs 20, verse 25 says, It is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. It is wrong for us to come in here just haphazardly and say, Oh, yeah, we're going to raise him in the Lord all of our lives without having any idea what that means. How many children have been baptized or christened or whatever is the case because their parents were fulfilling some religious ceremonies' requirements? Happens all of the time. And it's God's mercy that it's honored. But, friends, us holding a baby in the air this morning and asking God to dedicate him does little if the parents don't carry that out. Now, here's your responsibility. You have to help them. Have you ever wondered when you see its child misbehaving? Well, it's not my kid. What do I do? Well, in the church, you have a responsibility to help parents. You really do. It's perfectly all right with me. Listen to this, Judah.
1: <laughs> perfectly all right
0: with me if you see my son acting in an ungodly way to correct him because that's what Jesus would want. We have a responsibility to each other. Okay? You remember the first guy in the Bible who said, Am I my brother's keeper? He wasn't a good man, was he? You are your brother's keeper in Christ. In Luke 14, verse 28, we begin with these words. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Now, Jesus was not in the construction business. Didn't build towers during his lifetime. He's speaking about the way that we view things in the kingdom. The Bible even tells you that if you set to the plow and look back, you're not worthy. That attitude is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Well, how much more with a child? When two parents love each other, they fall in love and they decide to bring a child into this world they are supposed to consider what it will take to cause that child to fall into, love with, fall into love with the Lord. You know, the Jews, I told you about a few weeks ago, there are three houses of study. Well, in the very first house of study, one of the things that you did with a child at six years old was you would take date honey and you would rub it in little Christopher's mouth. You'd rub it in his mouth as you read the Word. Sometimes you would even take cookie-like bread and put the Word on it and have them eat it. The idea was from their earliest days they would see that the Word of God is pleasant, it's sweet, it's something to delight in. Think about your homes. (laughs) Do your children, do your neighbors, do your loved ones see the Word of God in your life as something to delight in? Or is it just restriction? Is it just bondage? Is it just something we must do because we're Christians? You know... Is the Word of God like a big burden on your shoulders that you walk around with, sorry that you have to carry it? Or is it a delight, something that you look forward to? This affects children. You ever wonder why pastor's kids are usually the worst? They hear their daddies talk about the Word, but they don't see them live the Word. Children are good at picking out hypocrisy. What they want to see in your life is a relationship. They want to see that when daddy prays, he means it. My boy got to pray with me about a house here recently. Looked like it couldn't come about. Other people bought the house. My son anointed the door with oil and prayed. And he asked me every day about the house. I bet at nine years old now he will remember all the days of his life that he prayed with Daddy for a house and he got the house. My younger son gave up his piggy bank, his little war chest of uh, treasure to get the older son, a Bible. Those are the kind of things that you want to instill in kids from the earliest days. You know? I know this morning David exercised some discipline in one of the kids' lives. Grandparents, that's not a bad thing. I know it's hard for you to see your kids beating their children. It's hard. It hurts. And it's absolutely necessary because the result is somebody that will make you happy when you're old. Be a reward to you. Uh Uh-oh. The benefits of doing it right. Psalms 102 teaches us the children of your servants will live in your presence." presence. Their descendants will be established before you. Have you ever heard somebody's family line got cut off, bus crash, everybody died, no more descendants? A couple times in the Bible people that did not do well their family line was cut off. That's very sad. The Bible promises us, though, that when you live in the presence of God, you'll teach your children to live in the presence of God and your family line will endure forever. You know, this is the second little boy that is born to David and Jennifer Hall. That means that the righteousness that Fred Hall sought out for his family, established in his children, is now reaching the third generation. So there will be righteous halls walking on the earth when Jesus returns, provided they do what the Word says. Isn't that good news? That moves me. Moves me when I look through my genealogies, my family history, when I talk with my grandparents, when I do this, this moves me. In fact, I'm on a mission to go backwards in my family for all those that are living. And even though we may not have all started right, we can start again today. That's the freshness of the Gospel. Isn't that beautiful? Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in His commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Every mother, every father, every grandmother, every grandfather wants their children to do good things. You want to see a mother worry? Tell her her son's not doing well at work. You know, she can't sleep. Tell tell her that her son is uh, not doing well in his relationships with people. You know, long after the son's forgotten about the comment and is going about his day, the mother's still sitting there anxious about it, nervous about it. That's because our children are supposed to be mighty in the land. This is a blessing from God. When you walk in the ways of God, He will cause you to prosper when others fail. He will cause you to succeed when there's a famine even. That's a blessing. So we want to get this right. Proverbs 17:6 says, Children's children, that's grandchildren, are a crown to the aged, And parents are the pride of their children. There's supposed to be a relationship between Judah and Bobby and I. All three of us are in here today. There's supposed to be a relationship between Judah and Gary Kinchin and I. These are relationships where we're supposed to be able to take pride in each other's lives because we see godly behavior and we want to imitate it. More than we want to imitate it, we want to please the other one and we know what makes everybody happy is to live like God would want this is a family unit. Sounds a lot like a church, doesn't it? That's why, in my life, church has always been the family unit. My parents who raised me one time asked me, It's like you love that church more than you love us. I looked them right in the eye, got us my witnesses, and I said, I absolutely do. But you can join the church. <laughs> they did.
1: <laughs>
0: the foundation for raising children has got to take place in marriage you'll see that from the very beginning of the creation, in Genesis 2.18, we see something here. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. All you men should say amen. amen. You single men in here should say amen twice.
1: <laughs>
0: it's not good for us to be alone. In fact, when you find a man who is walking in his calling with God and is alone, Paul calls it a special gift. That's, that's not how, he wished everybody could have that gift, but they don't. He covered this in Corinthians 7. It is a special gift to not need a spouse. Most of us need a spouse. If you live with me for a week, you'll find out all the reasons I need a spouse. I'm incapable of getting through the day without one. And not just any spouse, one that God picked for me. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. It's not enough for a man just to have the, any wife, any helper. There has to be a wife, a helper that is suitable. Now, please don't say any names, but think with me for a moment of the marriages that you know where people were not suitably matched. The Bible's word for peace is shalom. That's the Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom we translate as peace. Peace in our language basically means the absence of strife, right? That's not the kind of peace that the Bible describes though. Shalom conveys a sense that all is right in the creation. Perfect unity from God all the way down to the children to even the animals in the house. Peace means more than the absence of strife. It means the perfect flowing of God's spirit in your home. When Jesus said, Let your peace rest on a home, that word is shalom bait, peace in the home. He's not talking about let there be an absence of strife, although that's one of the, the benefits. He's talking about let God's authority be recognized throughout the home. Let it flow like water downhill. From the Father of our heaven or of our spirits in heaven right on down through the husband, through the wife, through the children. This peace takes work though. And part of it is you need a suitable helper. Now, if you're sitting there crossing your arms going, well, the problem in my house is my, my spouse is not suitable. Well,
1: praise God.
0: We serve a life-changing God.
1: <laughs>
0: you're probably not suitable either, but you can be remade. That's the hope of the gospel. Have to start with somebody that can't cross your arms and say, well, we're there more godly then. I'll be more godly. When she submits to me, then I'll be more like Christ. Well, I think you just excluded yourself. Doesn't work that way, does it? Faith always takes action and then trusts God. Faith always takes a step and trusts God that it will work. Faith never stands back and says, God, if you do, then I will do. That's not faith. Anyway, the Lord, or verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, wow, man. For she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united and they will become one flesh. I want you to notice God already had in mind what He was going to do as we start Genesis 2. He didn't bring all the animals before Adam and then go, wow, Adam needs a wife. He said in advance, it's not good for man to be alone, then He brought the animals before Adam. In naming, in, in the Hebrew culture, you name based on something's function, you ever noticed that about the names in the Bible? In fact, if you translate the names from Adam all the way through Jesus, it tells a story. Their names tell a story. Isn't that interesting? We'll show you that sometime. But you named a child based on what you wanted him to be, what you felt God moving you to be. You remember uh, Jacob's wife, uh, Rachel. She's pregnant. She's having a baby. And because she's in pain, she says, His name shall be Ben-Oni, child of pain. Father looks at her and says, No, his name shall be Ben-Yamin, child of happiness, son of my right hand. That child turned out to be a joy to his father in his old age. That was a prophetic calling. Well, the reason God had Adam name all of the animals is he had to study their lives. He had to see what they were about and he named them based on what they did. Then he realized he needed something. It was God's idea and then Adam realized he needed a suitable helper. That's important. Because for a husband and wife's relationship to work right, since God has apportioned the husband as the head, one of the balancing factors is the husband has to be painfully aware he needs his wife. Now, I love Fred, but I love Suzanne and Fred together a whole lot more because they are one flesh. Together, they are a good unit. They've had years of practice at it. Have you ever known a couple and... When one of them was by themselves, it was difficult. When they were together, everything moved smoothly? Well, sure you know a couple like that. Jennifer and I are that way. You know? I'm the hammer in the relationship and she's the polishing rag. You know, you would much rather have us work together as a team than just come to me for counsel. I promise that. A healthy marriage is a must. From Genesis we see that man learned of his need for a wife. We also see that man and women were originally one and that when married, they leave their respective families and become one again. Now, we're not just teaching about marriage today. There's a reason for this. In order to produce godly offspring, the foundation has to be right. Marriage has got to work correctly. The reason so many children, forgive the term, are so fouled up is because they came from marriages that are fouled up. Why do you think the devil's worked to attack the marriage in our country the way that he has? Even to where we want to redefine it. It's because God wants something we'll find in Malachi out of marriage. He wants godly offspring. And it's hard to get that when you don't have a a good foundation to start on. A foundational truth that must be acknowledged in the beginning is that husband and wife form a new independent entity under heaven. I love that we have the grandparents here today. You have a unique responsibility. It's your job to help this couple raise their children. But it's their job to raise the children. Anything that you have to offer is strictly advice. If you don't see it that way, then you need to get in the Word and find out why it's this way. Theirs is the responsibility. That means you offer advice, loving advice. When it's received, you're glad. When it's not, you sit back and wait. And you'll probably find out you were right, but let God show the couple that. Okay, this means grandparents. We don't just spoil grandkids. That's really not a funny thing to do. <laughs> you know, I know you, you. think it's fun? We'll pay them back. I remember when they did this to when my kids did this and did this and did this. So now I've got them. I'm going to spoil the grandkids a little bit, and they'll have to, That's really not funny.
1: <laughs>
0: I have three children now. I can tell you, it's really not all that funny. I'm not saying you can't have a little fun with him, but we all need to join together to see that Christopher becomes everything that God wants him to be. This new joint venture in marriage has a purpose. Immediately after the fall, battle plans are revealed. In Genesis 3.15, we see these words, and I will put enmity, that's warfare. I've never been able to say that word, y'all forgive me. It's enmity. (laughs) I would put an extra I in it. But it's warfare. It's warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In the naming of woman, what was woman's name, by the way? She was first called woman, but what did, what did Adam name his wife? Eve, you remember names have to do with function in the Bible? When Adam heard what would happen, that through his wife would come somebody who would crush the head of the enemy. And he may or may not have understood that this would be a process of over 4,000 years and generation after generation, he gave her a new name. She was no longer man with a womb. She was Eve, the mother of the living. He recognized immediately that the salvation of the human race depended upon her doing something right. And he named her Eve, the mother of all who would be alive. Well, the battle plans are drawn. The new joint venture has a purpose. Man and woman would come together in order to produce godly offspring. And this offspring would be at war with the enemies of God. Why would that be? Because God put man on this earth to rule it. He put man on this earth to subdue it, meaning there was already something here that was wrong. Our kids are a part of that. This child will learn to advance the kingdom of God, to put down the enemies of God through his godly behavior. I was at a birthday party last night. Brad Hall is the firstborn son of Fred and Suzanne Hall. He's reached 37 years. That's a milestone. And at 37 years old, they should be proud that this man loves the Lord. He dwells in the Word. His life is about trying to do what Jesus wants. Even if you have gray hair, you can consider that a crown of splendor if that's what your life produced. Because truthfully, one day Fred and Suzanne will go on to be with Jesus and we'll be sad for a moment and then we'll rejoice knowing that they reached the goal. And what will survive them on this earth? Brad will. David will. My wife, Jennifer, will. It's the legacy that they leave behind. That is their contribution to the battle here. Well, this baby's going to be a contribution to the battle. The roles of the partner in this venture are laid out clearly from the very beginning. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, there are some things in the Bible that because of our modern conditioning seem sexist. But you remember that this was predicated on the fact that the husband understood he needed his wife. In other words, we're just assigning roles in a joint venture where each other are mutually dependent on the other one. But somebody has to lead. It was to the woman given the right, the privilege to bear children. You know what's important about that? This would be the mode of salvation for the earth. If women didn't have children, there would be no salvation for the earth. The whole system would be upside down because it would later be promised, it already has been promised, that through the woman would come the one who would bring victory. So women are given the very most important role right off the bat. I would say that that speaks of equality in the first chapters of the Bible. Somebody recently told me from another state that they didn't see very many redeeming roles for women in the Bible. I said, you obviously haven't read the Word then. They took me up on it. They're reading it. Isn't that good? To the man, this is what God says. Cursed is the ground because of you. King James says, for your sake. Well, both are true. The ground was cursed because of the man's disobedience and, and it was cursed also because or for the sake of man to teach him something. This would always be here as a reminder in creation. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For the dust you are, into the dust you'll return. Both men and women get into these roles in marriage that relate to children that are hard. Think about this for a minute. You as a mother, the mothers in here, have you ever had the thought, I just can't do this. I mean, nobody understands these little yard apes are climbing the ceilings when nobody's around. I mean, my husband's at work all day. I have no identity left in life. I'm just his wife and my job's to take. I can't do this. Come on, if you had never said it, you've thought it. You can do it because it is your God-given function. God called you for that purpose which means He anointed you for that purpose. It's your job to learn to walk in His divine enablement. You as husbands in here, this starts from the moment that a man leaves his parents' house. You have the responsibility to provide for your house. This was given to you by God through Adam. Now, you may not be a farmer, but there's going to be resistance. It was told to Adam in the beginning, the ground that you are working for your food will resist you. Because there's resistance to us in the creation. When you go to work and you think, I just can't do this anymore, I need to quit, you need to know God's divine enablement is upon you to do it. Dave and Jennifer can look back at the last 10 years of their life and see that things they thought they couldn't do, they have in fact done. And done pretty darn well in many cases. We need to develop the attitude and the idea that says, This is my role in life, this is my calling first. When you ask a Christian what is your calling, you usually hear to be an evangelist, to be a prophet, to be this, to be that. Your calling, first and foremost, is to raise godly children and to perform your roles well. Otherwise, everything you do in your life will be lost. It'll be lost. One generation away from apostasy is the church. You realize that? You can all have faith that moves mountains, and if you don't impart it to your children, in the next generation, what Jesus accomplished on the earth through you is gone. Eli's family line got cut off in the Bible. How sad. Man had been a high priest in Israel and his family line got cut off, meaning everything that he did was lost at that point. What a shame. It's important that we get this right. In very general terms, you can see that their restoration would come as the husband worked to provide for the family and the wife produced godly offspring. This were the roles. It's not okay, husband, for you to decide you don't want to work anymore. Not okay. Not okay, wife, for you to decide, I'm just not taking care of these kids anymore. It was your God-given role. But here's something that's important. In understanding your role, it doesn't mean that they're mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean that they can't overlap. It doesn't mean that a godly wife mentioned in Proverbs 31 doesn't help her husband make a living. It doesn't mean that a godly husband does not help his wife instruct the children. They're supposed to overlap. It's just that you each have primary responsibilities. That's for the children's benefit. Have you ever seen guys too, by the way? There's a reason mostly we have women working in children's church. Not because we're sexist. It's because we recognize where people's talents are. The reality is they're far better at it than we are. You put me back there for an hour and I feel like I have been through Vietnam. And the kids feel like they've been through Vietnam. I have a unique parenting style. I walk into the room. I demand obedience. If I don't get it, I I discipline. I found out that that's good for children sometimes, but that's not all they need. They need something that mommy is able to do for them. The daddy just, you know, when Jennifer leaves me with the kids all day and she comes back from somewhere, they're usually seated along the wall, you know, (laughs) legs crossed, arms folded, not allowed to speak. To me, that's being a great dad, you know? And she says, well, did they get to do anything? I said, well, they didn't hurt each other. She said, well, but, you know, did they, did y'all have fun? I said,
1: I had a great time,
0: you know? These roles are meant to overlap. They're not mutually exclusive. The purpose of this joint venture is that Adam understood that he and his wife together would produce this offspring. The foremost purpose in marriage is to produce the offspring that would crush the enemy's head and bring life. That is from the very first man and woman. Can you imagine the joy with which they anticipated their first children being born? Born With the help of the Lord, i brought forth a man, Eve said. I mean, they are excited. This could be the one. And even in the first generation, we had a 50% failure rate. Boy, the mercy of God, though, huh? It didn't stop there, did it? It carried on for 4,000 more years until a woman produced the right son. Everything else before that was foreshadowing. Oh, wow. I thought twice about leaving this slide in there. (laughs) How many times have you heard from people that Paul had negative views towards women or that he was sexist? The sad thing is that if you excerpt Scripture, if you simply turn to a story about Lot and his daughters, okay, in a cave in Zor, it doesn't provide an accurate description of all of the Bible. If you simply turn to a Benjamite and his concubine in the latter part of the book of Judges, it certainly does not provide an accurate view of the rest of the Bible. Well, when somebody turns to a letter written from one man, the Apostle Paul, to another, Timothy, who was like his son in the faith, and they don't understand the context or the culture from which this word was derived, it's easy for them to misunderstand it. This Scripture has been the uh, uh, fan on the flame for feminists against the Scripture against uh, living a godly life in Christ. They see this as backwards. I want you to understand it in its proper light because when you see it, it's a beautiful thing, not a sad thing. Watch this. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. This is 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold, or pearls, or expensive clothes. Let me pause here for a minute. Throughout the centuries, before and after these statements, women have dressed differently, haven't they? If you go to Egypt, women dress differently than they do in uh, Holland in the 1700s. They dress differently than they do in Antarctica. This scripture tends to speak about the condition of somebody's heart. And it just so happens, I bought my wife a Bible here recently. If you haven't seen these yet, good Bible. The Zondervan Archaeological Bible. They have discovered that in the town that Timothy lived in, there are frescoes painted in houses of prostitution. And one of the ways that you identified a prostitute was she had gold braided into her hair. It was a sign. Kind of like fishnet stockings and high heels and walking on certain streets at a certain time of the day might be a sign here. Paul wanted Timothy... To tell the women to avoid being like worldly women because their beauty was going to come from a different place, because their function came from a different place. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. How do you dress with good deeds? Isn't that what he said to do? How do you dress with good deeds? Are we really talking about strict regulations for clothing? Are we talking about what a woman is represented by? See, I have known some beautiful women. They were friends of my wife that had sour attitudes and became ugly to me. I've seen some women that were not incredibly attractive at first glance that because of the beautiful deeds in their life become an incredibly attractive thing. Isn't it amazing how somebody's behavior can literally seem to affect their appearance? Why somebody walk around sucking on a persimmon all the time and tell me that they don't become ugly to you? Isn't a smile a beautiful thing? Women, learn to give yourself a facelift. You know, you don't have to go to a surgeon to do it. Pull at the corners of your mouth until they stretch towards heaven. That is a beautiful thing. It improves your appearance right away. Husband's not a bad idea for you either. (laughs) A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, she must be silent. Now, the same guy who wrote this to Timothy also said women could prophesy and that they should prophesy. He had friends who had a daughter, seven daughters, in fact, who prophesied. Where do you prophesy? In church. So he doesn't mean that women cannot speak, period. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about in a specific setting about teaching, and there's a reason. He's getting to it. Verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Boy, if you stop there, that sounds so ugly, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like, all eh, well, the problems in the world have to do with the woman? <laughs> well, if you are tempted to think that, you also need to realize that every solution that has ever entered the world came through a woman because you couldn't be here if you did not, were not born of a woman. Okay. There's some real balancing thoughts in scripture that keep you from viewing men and women as independent of each other. But this is not what he's saying. He's simply laying down that original foundation in a marriage. The husband was the head and then the wife. He's saying that it would be out of order for a wife to chide her husband in a church service and correct his teaching. That's what he's trying to say. But here's what we wanted to get to. But women, or your footnote in the NIV will say she because all women were represented in Eve. She was the federal head of all females that would come from her, okay? But women or she will be saved or restored through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Now, at first glance, that sounds like God's desire for Jennifer here is to keep her barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen, right? Isn't that what you heard from people? Nothing could be further from the truth. God's desire is for Jennifer and David together as a unit to produce children that will advance His kingdom on this planet, which is why man was put here in the first place. Woman, when, when man and woman fell from grace, the hope, the restoration hope that was given was given centered around children being born, specifically a child who would come. But every child brings that hope. That's the attitude that women were supposed to walk in. That's what Paul was trying to teach as one who is empowered, empowered that salvation will come through her children, that awesome works for the kingdom of God will come through her children. This is something you take pride in, not something that you wear as a bald and chain. Is this arcane or is it progressive? Well, Paul understood the pattern. He's teaching that women everywhere are saved in the same hope as Eve that the seed from her body will crush the enemy. I would say that's empowering to women. If I was a feminist and I'm not, I'd put that on a poster as why women are strong. For this to happen, everyone needs to understand and embrace their roles. Jesus has already come, so why go on with childbearing? The body of Christ is not complete yet. That's why. He said, well, Mary did her job well. She was a virgin who had a baby who crushed the head of the enemy, so the prophecy is fulfilled. Wrong, Saints. The prophecy just started to be fulfilled. Jesus is called the head, seated at the right hand. But every child that is born to the kingdom of God since forms his body. And when the body on earth meets the head in heaven, we have the kingdom of God on earth. It's said figuratively to be that way now, and yet you see that it's not. Does that make sense to you? That child will help complete the body of Christ. Her parents did a or his parents did a noble thing by bringing him into the world, by raising him in a godly way. Have you ever looked at people raising kids and carrying around the diapers and the strollers and everything and thought, oh man, why bother? You know, our, our birth rates drop every year in this country. There was a time my father came from a family, how, six brothers, six brothers and a sister, or it was six total, five uh, brothers and a sister. That's unusual today. You tell somebody, hey, I have six siblings and they look at you like you're crazy, you know? Depending on their political persuasion, they might look at you like you've abused your wife in some kind of way. This is an honor, though. In Louisiana, it's just a mark that you're Catholic, <laughs> that you don't believe in, in contraception. Well, I'm not Catholic, but I believe that we should have children. I believe that you should have children. The joint venture is attacked. You want to see that again? Nah, I don't want to do that. The joint venture is attacked. From the beginning, Satan has worked to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal, and kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. He's worked to steal the promises of God from our hearts. When your child's born, rather than think of all that he can do for the kingdom of God all the ways that He'll advance the kingdom of God, the ways that He'll complete the body of Christ, what are we tempted to think? How am I going to pay for this? How on earth are we going to feed these kids? How am I going to raise this child? I already got three and I don't think I can handle a fourth. You can because God says you can. He's worked to kill our children, literally and figuratively, the source of redemption. How many children have we lost in the last... Well, since Roe v. Wade. How many children have we lost that were meant to advance the kingdom of God? Yeah. Has the devil worked to kill our children? Yeah. yeah, even before birth. Then after birth. Boy, the number of near misses my kids have in a week is amazing. Gabriel's already got scars all over his head, you know? And most of all, his work to destroy our marriage covenants so that we do not produce the fruit God intended. You know, there's no mistake that the divorce rate in the world and in the church is similar. It's no mistake that that's the case. If you can break down the foundation of a marriage, you don't have the chance to raise the children in the way that they should. One of the most attractive things about my wife when I met her, a lot of attractive things that we probably don't need to cover here this morning, but one of the most attractive things about my wife when I met her was that her family seemed to be in order. That's not something you would think would be on a 15-year-old boy's mind, huh? I didn't even know it was. I just knew there was something comforting about their house. Brothers and sisters seemed to love each other. The father and the mother seemed to love each other, you know, weren't throwing things at each other. The house didn't seem to be in disorder. There was something peaceful about that, something that drew me to that. That made her attractive. Isn't that interesting? That's God's drawing power. I could see something in that even when I was lost that I knew was right. That's a good thing. Malachi 2.13 is a Scripture that people quote all of the time. They quote the fact that God hates divorce, but they never tell you why. You need to keep reading. Malachi 2.13 says another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner... Friends, we need to get that in our heads. Our wives are our partners. The wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why? Why did God do this? Malachi asked the question. Then he answers it. Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord the God of Israel. We know that God hates divorce. It tears up people's lives, right? You see a woman that can't support herself. You see a husband that his heart is torn in two and he doesn't know how to relate to the rest of the world because of an awful tearing that's occurred. And all of that is horrible. But the biggest reason that it's horrible is because God wanted something out of that union. He wanted fruit. We're here today to dedicate fruit to God. We're going to hold this baby up and say, Lord, this is what you were seeking when you brought these two people together. This is the product of their life or at least one of the products of their life. It's what God was seeking. You know, there are all kinds of things that the Bible speaks of negatively. You know, everybody in here would agree adultery is bad, right? But when you think of adultery, the first thing you think of is is an unfaithful husband or wife. The Bible calls all kinds of things adultery though. Israel was said to have committed spiritual adultery. Ezekiel 23 is probably the most graphic description of that in all of the Bible. I mean, I couldn't even read it to my son. I don't think I could explain it to him. And literally what God is trying to convey is an awful tearing. Anything a husband and wife do in their home that causes the two people who are one to start to tear into different directions, God calls awful. We're going to see Jesus says that this ought never happen. What God put together, let no man separate. That word for separation is where you get adultery from. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because in this couple's life, I have no fear that either one of them are going to commit uh, what the world would call adultery. But have you ever heard the, the phrase, oh, well, we just grew apart? Friends, that doesn't happen. You do not grow apart. You have to be torn apart because God put you together. When two people look at each other after 20 years and say, oh, well... You know, we've just grown in different directions. What they're doing is glossing over the truth that is they allowed themselves to be torn in different directions. This unity in the home that this couple has is an important thing. It has to grow. You know, Peter addressed the saints in one of his churches and he said, though you possess these qualities, you need to do so more and more. Well, that's the attitude we're talking about today. There's new responsibility in their home. They're already doing well, but they're going to have to do better. Because there's new responsibility and God requires more of them today than He did last month. He'll require more next year than He did last year. I promise that. Marital division of any kind is a problem. Look at this in Mark 10, verse 6. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but are one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Then an enemy attacks in this area to prevent you from raising children in the Lord and completing the plan. God's called us to be one for a reason. We produce a certain kind of offspring. We advance the plan of God. This is why the devil's work so hard to attack it. It starts with us though. It starts by submitting to one another out of love refusing to let the sun go down while you're still angry. That's where it starts. So you think we're just going to dedicate a baby today? If it was a magical spell we could put on this child that would cause him to become godly, then we would do it that way. If we could simply have him eat a wafer and be saved, we would do it. But you can't. It starts with hard work from these two performing their calling. Times when they don't want to. You ever been in a restaurant, your kid's being bad, and you're in the valley of decision right there. I know that what God would want of me is to use the rod to drive folly from the heart of my child. But it's going to make a scene It's going to ruin my dinner. It's going to be embarrassing. All We don't really have a choice. We really do not have a choice. We must do what God tells us to do. And if that means that we give up some of our freedom, some of the things that we would like, we do it because it's what God's called us to do. See, People say, Oh, well, so-and-so is just a good kid. Or so-and-so is just a good kid. They were lucky. In my experience, there are no lucky parents. There are parents that consistently work towards a goal and see it as God's calling in their life. And there are parents that are lazy with their calling. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. Why did God call you? He called you for the same reason that He called Abraham. In Genesis 18, 18, you see these words. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. You ever wondered why Abraham was called such a friend of God? Why on uh, 2,000 years before Jesus, all the people on the planet, why did God pick Abraham? According to this, it's because he was confident that Abraham would teach his children. What does that tell you about most of the other people on the planet? God didn't have such confidence, did He? It is a hard thing to staff your children. It wears you out. And then to find the balance between correcting them to the point where you're breaking their spirit and encouraging them is a hard thing. I can tell you the most profound lesson I've ever learned about mercy is when I know that my children deserve punishment and I am about to inflict it and realize "Mm, this is the time they need mercy. Judah, can you define Mercy. Y'all hear this. When you deserve to be punished, but you don't get it. Do you know how Judah learned that? There was a belt in my hand. My left hand was on the back of his neck holding him against the wall and the arm was drawn. Is that a picture of mercy? Do you think he understood it? Do you think he'll ever forget that? I don't think so. In fact, now... When I walk to get the belt, they start crying, Mercy, Dad! Mercy, mercy, mercy! (laughs) I think that's great. (laughs) We all are objects of mercy. And when you remember that, it will teach you to discipline your kids in a way that God would discipline you. Okay? It's not all just loving patting on the back, but it's also not all fear and a stick over their head. There's a balance, and it is hard work to strike the balance. That's why God called two of you as well. Help you find that. What the God of the universe has invested in you was intended to be passed on to the next generation. Psalm 78 teaches us in this way, starting in verse 1. "O oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He has decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He has commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but keep His commands. God invested something in Abraham that Abraham was to teach his children that were to teach their children that were to teach their children. You know, that one nation was called Israel and they were called a kingdom of priests, a nation of royalty. Peter applies those same words to you. Do you know what that means this child is? He's the crown's prince. He's destined to become a king with God. And everything that David and Jennifer learned in their life about their walk with God, they are commanded by God to pass on to Him so that it will not be lost. You know why denominational religion and commentaries in their very essence can be false? For all the good things that they do. If you presume to have learned everything that you needed in one generation and not change, you are already wrong. The plan and goal of God is for David to learn everything that he can and to pass it on to Chris, not so that he'll keep the same knowledge, so that he will grow it and it will get bigger. Every generation has an obligation to embrace the words that Paul wrote to Timothy and decide how they're to be applied in their culture, in their lives, and in their callings. I like to point out the fact that Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I love Bobby, but when he came in here, he didn't kiss me. Does that mean that he is living in opposition to the Scripture? It means that this generation has embraced that Scripture, those that love the Lord and decided what God was saying in His living Word to them. We didn't rely on somebody 500 years ago to tell us what it meant. We are embracing it for ourselves, asking and being guided by their wisdom. Those that went before us in the faith have the role of grandparents. It's advice. I'm sorry, that's commentary kind of off the subject. Proverbs 22, verse 6, is probably the most misunderstood concept in the Bible. How many times have you heard somebody say, Well, I raised little Johnny, right? But, you know, I don't know why he's off living in sin. Proverbs 22, verse 6, tells us to train a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many people would say that the Texans football team, or Fred, the LSU football team, was trained right if all they were done is placed on a field in a uniform? That's not training. What is training? Training means that you start right, that you are built into constantly, that you're being torn down and rebuilt, always being molded into a certain shape. In fact, discipleship has its roots in discipline chosen by the Master because He believes you can become like Him and then your whole life is pushed in that direction. To train a child in the way that they should go is not simply to dedicate them. It is to live a life dedicated to them, serving them so that they will learn to serve your Father. It's often quoted, well, I know that we started the child right, we trained the child right, so he'll return to the Lord. That's the promise in the Scripture. That's not the promise in the Scripture says that he won't turn from it. Now, I'm not saying that to be condemning the parents. I'm a parent. I'm going to have to face this music with my children. But I see this not as a negative. I see it as a very positive thing. This is a promise to me that if I will invest in my kids, if David and Jennifer will invest in their kids, not by providing for their college, although that's a great thing, not by providing for their clothing, although we all like clothed kids, (laughs) not by just feeding them, although they do like to eat, But by making sure that they learn to walk in covenant with God, I won't have to worry about them not being mighty in the land, not walking in the presence of God and not dwelling in the presence of God. That's the promise in that. But we need to understand that it involves not just dedicating or starting, but a continual training regimen. Anybody in here ever work out? You can see that I don't. (laughs) But I once did. Funny thing about working out. If you did and do not now... Everything that you did is lost. If these two parents take a break for 10 years in their life and decide, you know, it's just not that important to me. I've reached an age where I want a sports car. Reached an age where I'd like to reach out and explore new things. My wife and I have grown apart. Some would call that a midlife crisis. If that happens, you know who will suffer? The children. Because the investment that happened in them when they were young was just training. But the training has to be complete. So it won't happen, right? We're going to take vows in a little while just like in a marriage. In Exodus 12, you are taught as a Jew to let your children ask you questions, to do things in their presence so that they ask. Now, as a parent, I can tell you firsthand, having curious little boys, how annoying this can be. Dad, why does the car do that? Well, son, the car does that because when you turn the ignition over and uh, electricity goes through this and this and it ignites gas and it propels the car forward. What do they say? Why? Well, because we'd like to go from here to there. Why? God put it in them at a certain age to learn one word only. Why? This was for a specific reason. Look at Exodus 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you what does the ceremony mean to you, then... Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. It goes on and on and on. You're even told in Deuteronomy 6 to impress the commands of the Lord upon your children. Do you know what the word impress means? In Hebrew, this is literally to stamp with force upon something. The Jews took this so seriously, I guess I to read it to you. These commandments that I will give you today are to be upon your hearts impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Everything in the parent's life is meant to impress something upon the children. Sometimes that takes pressure. Sometimes it takes force. But it is your job as a parent Have you ever stamped something into leather? I have. It's hard to do. You have to prepare the leather. You have to find something that is uniquely shaped so that you get the right impression. Then you have to hit it very, very hard. I'm not trying to teach you to abuse your children. I'm telling you that it does not always come natural to them to do God's will. And you have to shape the environment. You have to find the right tools and you have to apply the proper force to get it to occur. But you will eat that fruit later. it will be a joy to you. It would be a good thing. What David did this morning was not an easy thing for him to do. He had to go discipline one of his children. That was not an easy thing to do and yet it is his calling. It's a high calling. He's not just called to preach or to teach or to heal the sick or raise the dead. He's called to raise his children. You're called the healthy minute. The foundation for marriage is the husband and wife coming together and that's meant to produce children. Did you know that the foundation for ministry in the Bible is a godly family? Over and over and over. You see it in 1 Timothy 3, and we're not going to read all of these, that when you choose a husband and and a wife and a family, actually when you choose a minister, the requirements are that their family look a certain way. Why is that? Because if you didn't excel in the first calling that you were given, you're not fit to serve in the church. That's what the Bible teaches. You are supposed to excel in that calling and then ministry flows out of your home. If my household is in order, you will sense it when you walk into it, just like I sensed it at 15 years old, lost, walking into the Hall's house for the first time. I could tell. I didn't know what I could tell. I didn't know what it was, but I could feel it. I knew it was there and I was drawn to it. That makes you an effective minister. You want to be useful to the Lord? Get your foundation in your home right. It, have you noticed that with young people that get married, one of the first things that happen is they get separated from the parents, the in-laws in their life? A lot of times they get sent off somewhere for a year, six months, a couple years. That's so that God can form them. It's so that they can learn to get that right in their lives first because that's the foundation for ministry. I'll read you this one verse out of 1 Timothy 3. Speaking of an overseer, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? goes on to say that the men are to be worthy of respect, that the women are to be women worthy of respect, that even if you want to be a deacon, a table waiter, that you must manage your children and your household well. Ministry flows from the family. The reason that ministry flows from the family is that families are the building blocks for God's body of Christ, the family of God. When we fail to obey God by training our children and managing our households, the results are painful. Think about this verse. The rod of correction imparts wisdom. That's Proverbs twenty nine, fifteen. But a child left to himself disgraces his mother. Why didn't it say disgraces his father? her primary responsibility incidentally it does disgrace the father as well but there is an order of authority in a house and when it gets out of order things don't work well this proverb says it disgraces the mother because the mother is the one who has the primary responsibility with the child all day long that doesn't give the father a free pass it's his job to help his wife their partners a lot of pressure hun in You do a good job, sweetheart. Great men of God who failed greatly. Gideon conquered kingdoms for God, but he had a son who murdered the other 69 of his sons. So was Gideon a success or not? Well, I don't want to pass judgment on Gideon today, but isn't that something to think about? Conquer kingdoms for God, but have one son murder the other 69. Not something I'd be proud of. Eli judged Israel for 40 years. That's a long time, friends. I had not even been alive that long yet. But refused to discipline his sons, and he became an object of scorn and disgrace, died in shame at a time period where the glory of the Lord departed from Israel. Why? Because he refused his first calling and function in life. Samuel, an awesome prophet. (laughs) But his sons, Abiah and Joel, were perverted and accepted bribes. That's not the legacy we want, is it? I don't want to hear one day, boy, Eric did a great thing. He prayed for Steve. He got filled with the Holy Ghost. Isn't that great? But his sons are in jail today. I want to hear that. I'd rather never have prayed for Steve to get filled with the Holy Ghost, but my sons make it. It just so happens, if you get the first right, the second will come too. David had a heart after God. He killed giants and was a great king, but he had a son that was a rapist. And another son that led an insurrection and then slept with David's own wives in front of all of the kingdom. David's life was filled with familial infighting and insurrection. Men of God often have had their eye on the prize and forgot about their very own homes. We can't do that. Solomon, wisdom beyond measure. But his children burst the civil war in Israel that split the kingdom into two halves, northern and southern. Southern. Isn't that amazing? Here's the right examples. I going to read you these and we're going to quit. We're right on an hour and y'all are tired, huh? Didn't give you enough coffee. <laughs> Susanna put you next to Mary there. You see
1: that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. How awesome. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He told her that she was highly esteemed, that she had found favor, and so God was giving her a son. Today we act like it's some kind of punishment at times if a woman has a child. It was a mistake that shouldn't have happened. She should have the right to choose something else. This was the highest calling in a woman's life to give birth to children. And it fell on Mary. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. I wonder what Christopher will accomplish in his life. Is this the next Billy Graham sitting here? Is this one of the end time prophets who calls down fire? You know, what will he do? Will he raise the dead? Heal the sick? Will he preach and people tremble? What will happen in his life? We don't know. He's got all the potential in the world before him. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Verse 34, How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One-to-be will be born and will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Look at Mary's response. David, Jennifer, hear Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered, May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. I want you to think about this for a minute. This girl was probably 14 years old. She was pledged to be married to a man who might not understand, can you imagine? Might not understand that although she was a virgin, she's having a baby. How would you like to go explain that to somebody? There is a good chance that she could be stoned. Good chance. Best case scenario... Scenario for her be put away quietly. And she's probably 14 and is going to have the responsibility of a baby. Looking at being ostracized by her family. Ostracized by the man who would want to marry her. Having to provide for a baby and a social outcast. And yet, what is her response? May it be to me as you have said. Why? Because the glory of the calling outweighed the cost. If you're going to build the tower, you need to count the cost and see whether or not you have what it takes to complete it. She did. And she said, Hey, I want this. That's the calling of a mother. That is a high calling. That's an awesome thing. Manoah, Samson's father. Judges 13, verse 6. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because this boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring the boy up and how he's to be born. Mary said to the angel and said of God, Let it be done to me as you've said. This man, when he finds out he's going to have a son, says, Lord, I beg you, this is exciting, but send a man of God to me to teach me how to do it. Both attitudes are necessary. One that says, oh, I'm ready to embrace this calling. It's worth it. And another that says, but I need you to teach me, Lord. I need you to tell me how to bring up this child. I wouldn't give an manual how to bring up my kids. Neither was David. There are times we're going to get it wrong. Your grandparents will know. You've been there. You've done it before. You've seen it. We need God to show us. The last one's Hannah, Samuel's mother. Y'all heard I said last one? Y'all are glad, huh? Chairs get hard. After he was weaned, 1 Samuel 24, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord... I am a woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life and he will be given over to the Lord. Not only do you have to embrace the calling as a parent and say, may it be done to me as you said, you also have to ask, Lord, send me a man of God to teach me to do this. That's happened by way of the Word, by the way of this fellowship, by way of the Spirit. And then you have to be willing to say, this baby that I've cared for for so long, whatever you want out of him, you can have, Lord. Now that's easy as long as it's a doctor or a lawyer, right? What if it's a martyr? What if it's a prophet? What if it's somebody that never sees monetary success but advances the kingdom mightily? Is that okay, Mom? Is that okay, Dad? We shake our head, yes, but even Mary, who knew the prophecies over her son, heart was pierced with grief because she had to watch it. Can you imagine that? I can't. Be honest. Keith Green sings a song called I Pledge My Head to Heaven. And in the song he says, Though my son is kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned, it brings me to tears almost every time I hear it because I've got sons. And I know that that's the kind of God that we serve. Not one who wants to hurt your children, but one that says they belong to me and not you. I want you to give them back to me. Trusting that he can do more with them than we can do. David and Jennifer Hall. Jennifer ran out. That's not good. We're going to have some vows. So maybe, Lynette, you could get Jennifer. Can you ask her to come back in here? These vows, church, are going to be witnessed by you. And in witnessing a vow, you have an obligation to help the parents keep it. You know why there's best men at weddings? You've heard everything in the world from you know, he's the guy who defends the bride from being stolen my wife loves that movie about the seven brides for seven brothers. I think she got that from Suzanne. The purpose for witnesses at these weddings the purpo- or at these ceremonies is the same as having a wedding party. These are people, meaning you, who are going to stand in covenant with them to help them do this. And here are the vows. Boy, isn't that a cute kid? <laughs> David, Jennifer, y'all stand up face the church. Young stand or sit. It's okay. They're they're making these vows before God, but also before you, and I'm going to make them with them. David, Jennifer, like Mary and Joseph, will you view parenting as your service to the Lord? We will. Like Manoah, will you ask for and accept instruction from the Lord regarding training Christopher in righteousness? Yes, we will. Means you don't get offended if somebody gives you a suggestion about a different way to do it, right? Like Hannah, yeah, we're recording this.
1: Like Hannah,
0: will you yield your will for Christopher's life to God's will, acknowledging and acting as if his whole life belongs to the Lord? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think he likes my preaching.
1: <laughs>
0: Finally, will you train him, meaning to discipline him, to start him, to disciple him through your actions and discipleship to love the Lord with all of his heart? soul, mind, and strength regardless of what it takes. Yes. We have a certificate for you. Y'all, church, stand up. i read this to you. This is your part of the oath. Okay? <laughs> this certificate was presented on March fifth, two 2006 as a testament to the dedication of Christopher David Hull before the Lord and His servants at Life-Changing Ministries and Fellowship. Now, the Lord's here, His presence is here, and you are the servants. The certificate is going to stand for all time to the fact that you witnessed this. So I want you to know what your part is too. David Michael Hull and Jennifer McMorris Hull have both taken a solemn pledge before our God in the name of Jesus the Christ to train Christopher David Hull in the ways of our faith. Those of you that are Star Wars fans, that means he's like a Padawan for Jesus. They understand that it is his will, that it is the will of God to have one godly generation raise up the next and have pledged to carry out this responsibility with all diligence and faithfulness. We, the body of life-changing ministries and fellowship, pledge to support this holy endeavor using the authority that Jesus has endowed his church with to correct His people, to encourage them, and to instruct instruct them in the ways of holiness. To one holy end, the raising of a godly family, do we, the body of life-changing ministries and fellowship, unite with David and Jennifer Hall in this high honor from the Lord. Now, can you unite with them in this honor? Can you help them with this? Not their calling alone. We're a fellowship. We bear one another's burdens. Do you all say yes to that? Then what we need to do is we need to pray. We want to anoint this baby. We want to ask God to mark this occasion where David and Jennifer and each of you took an oath before God to see this child turn out right. That means 10 years from now, you could get a phone call that says, Darnell, I need your help. And you've taken an oath before God to do that because what God wants out of him is righteousness. So we're going to pray for and anoint him and you all pray with us.